Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 1. Murder was on neither my mind nor Sebastian's when we had accepted the invitation to Raz Robbie's party. But remote and sleepy though Mahe may be, it's always had the capacity to surprise, sometimes on a scale belying its miniature size. And it certainly delivered that night, the night of the party, in the steam heat of its tropical rainy season. At our beach house, on the west coast of this, the main island of Seychelles, we were preparing ourselves for an evening ahead that I hoped would generate a saleable news story that Sebastian hoped would augur a new beginning for me. In a way, neither of us would be disappointed, for within a few hours, two people would be dead in quite surreal circumstances. The island would be abuzz with whispers, and I would have far more than a puff to write about an internationally garlanded reggae artist releasing a new album. We were running late, as ever, to attend the launch party. Sebastian was on the veranda, pondering a vexing choice, which of a prized array of sunglasses he laid out reverently before him should complete his party outfit, though to me it was unclear exactly why. The sun had already started suffusing the Indian Ocean in deepening shades of amber and cerise just beyond our garden. I was hovering impatiently, watching the clock and muttering darkly, catching the Seychelles television news anchor messing up her evening newscast as I waited, mortifying yet mesmerizing to watch. How on earth did this woman get this job? I said. Is she drunk? Sebastian wasn't listening, but apparently had at last made a decision. Oh no, Ali, he said, tucking some wayfarers into the cleft of his open-neck shirt. Let's go. I frowned at him. Bella Caddo, explain to me how she got there. No idea, my love, but she's there and you're not, and that's all you need to know he said, snatching up the house keys from the kitchen counter and shooing me onto the veranda. It's time you dealt with it. They didn't want your British sense of fair play or your temper, and being able to read aloud fluently is obviously not a priority at Say TV. And tonight, you begin a new chapter in your journalism career as a music writer for The Guardian in London. Count yourself lucky it's not smash hits. Now dig as in. Masquerading as a gonzo pop music hack was far from familiar journalism territory for me, but as Sebastian had indicated, it was freelance work that paid, and the commission from The Guardian at least promised an evening of free drinks, snacks, and the chance to network with some of the island's better-connected reggae devotees. Young or old, rich or poor, Seishawa of all backgrounds found the offbeat rhythms of their homespun artists impossible to resist. Creole reggae was an omnipresent island soundtrack, blaring out in government offices and shops, from private gardens and family beach barbecues, and always from cars, 
booming bass notes like earth tremors blasting from the passing traffic as we, in our clapped-out mini-moke, set out on the coast road that evening in the direction of town. We were passing beneath a vault of silhouetted coconut fronds when, late though we were, Sebastian raised a hand and implored me to pull up momentarily by a roadside vendor who was packing away a day's end selection of Santol arrayed on an upturned bottle crate. A seasonal local delicacy, Sebastian scrutinized each fruit with the practiced eye of an aficionado. They resembled apricots, but were an acquired taste that I had yet to acquire. The slimy pips beneath a firm skin to be removed and sucked, a sensation faintly reminiscent of swirling a kiwi-fruit-flavoured bogey around on one's tongue. As he climbed back into the car, clutching his bounty, and started pulling one apart with the glee of a child opening a Christmas gift, a large grasshopper landed on my knee. You're going to receive a letter, Sebastian said through a slurp, gesturing at the creature staring defiantly at us. I brushed it away to join his brothers and put the moke into gear. Who says, I replied. That's what it means, we say, when you see a grasshopper. A letter will come. I raised an eyebrow. Is that what your grandmother told you? Well, let's hope it comes attached to an agreeably large remittance. The little car bounced its way cheerfully over the mountain, a welcome climb into cooler air after the day's heat. But before long, we were descending the winding way into Victoria, slowing at La Louise, just to the south, to glimpse the pinprick lights of the compact island capital and Port Victoria, glittering beneath like a handful of diamonds on black velvet. The party was already in full swing by the time we parked at the basketball court in front of State House and strolled the short distance towards the boisterous throng spilling from the garden of the National Museum of History. It had gone seven, according to the country's landmark clock tower, the silver-painted vestige of a long-vanished colonial past overlooking it. The star was on stage. We quickened our pace towards the promise of free rum-based cocktails milling with Raz Robbie's flock of followers who swayed as one to his wailing vocals and pounding beat, a human murmuration in red, gold and green. Bonsoir tout mon bons amis, the legendary Rassavarian addressed them, striking a deafening metallic chord on his guitar to the crowd's raucous approval. Mon très content, he went on. But, oh, okay, I must speak English, of course. We have guests from the international media with us here tonight. So, yes, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your support. I give you my new album. And with this, we put our beloved Seychelles out there to the world, sisters and brothers. That's right, my friends. To each and every person around the globe, Robbie says, one love. Merci bonbons me. Enjoy the party. As a devotee of sequined soul divas, Sinatra and Miss Streisand, the entirety of what I knew about reggae music and Raz Robbie could barely have filled the back of the paper napkin that I snatched from a passing caterer's tray. Into it, Sebastian and I greedily piled a selection of highly calorific snacks, 
found drinks and settled ourselves on a low stone wall to stuff ourselves and watch people. There were familiar figures from the music circuit, naturally, mingling as a DJ took over the sound system, but also a smattering of high-profile individuals from many other walks of life. A member of the National Assembly, glad-handing a prominent proponent of cannabis decriminalisation, a leading human rights lawyer, several notorious but lesser league drug dealers, and even the Anglican bishop. He nodded benediction in my direction, and I raised greasy fingers to wave back. Of course, the cleric, like us, was oblivious then to what was to come that night. But a stage had already been set for deception and death. Ras Robbie was giving interviews and I left Sebastian with a replenished glass before embedding myself with the other journalists to pick up quotes. Prudently, I let those with more expert insights ask the questions and within a few minutes enough pages of my pocketbook were filled and I returned thirstily to resume my place for a top-up. Of Sebastian, however, there was no sign. Then I spotted him waving from some steps above the fray that was starting to thin out to friends, a few favoured fans and the more determined freeloaders. Sebastian had secured us a table and company. I pushed through the melee to join them. Patrick, he said, introducing us. This is Norville, Raz Robbie's brother. We'd never met, or if we had, I had no recollection. He beamed warmly. Instantly obvious was the family resemblance, uncannily strong. Delighted to meet you, I said, as we shook hands. I know what you're thinking. You don't have to say it, he said with a smile. We get it all the time, but go ahead and have your moment. He could tell I was weighing up the curious anomaly that he, so visibly Robbie's identical twin, had such a strikingly different personal identity. While his artistic sibling was the physical reincarnation of Bob Marley, complete with dreadlocks, beads, bangles and loose-limbed bagginess, Norville apparently hailed from a parallel universe. Shaven-headed, he was a clean-cut preppy in a carefully pressed button-down, chinos and suede loafers. He turned to Sebastian. And it's rich now, not Norville, he said. Norville was never really me. I'm rich these days, at least in a manner of speaking. The accent, another incongruity, seemed to come from somewhere well north of Watford. We sat at the table they'd found and waited as Rich signalled to an attendant for drinks that were soon ordered and swiftly appeared, a perk of family association. So how do you two know each other? I asked, taking a refreshing draw on a well-made Camparian soda. You obviously go back some way. It's not what you think, said Sebastian, grinning sheepishly. We were at Polonais together, different clusters, but same time. He was referring to the period of their teenage when, in one of the previous president's more regrettable misjudgments, the youth of Seychelles had been forced to endure a year or two of political indoctrination in a state-run residential program called National Youth Service. For some, 
It was a painful separation from close-knit families, incarcerated in concrete dormitory units they called clusters, while for others it was liberation. For the party faithful, it was a chance to demonstrate loyalty to the socialist revolution and a first step on the path to power, influence, and in many cases, personal profit. Sebastian, though, had always spoken warmly of his experience at NYS, even as a wisely silent opponent of the one-party state. There he'd learned to cook, sew on buttons and play volleyball. Occasionally he'd even opened a textbook. Did they make you strip naked and do star jumps in moonlit forest clearings? I asked mischievously. I've heard all about the marching drills and patriotic songs. Oh, it wasn't that bad, said Rich. Poorly implemented, but NYS had a lot going for it. I do a lot of stuff with youngsters now, helping them make something of themselves. I tell them, success doesn't just fall from a mango tree. You have to work for it. They can't all rely on raw talent like my brother. He's never done a proper day's work in his life. Sebastian looked over his glass. Rich is executive chef of Cadeau Noir. Oh, are you? I said, putting the picture together. So you've beaten the odds. Proof that Sechewa can rise to the top in a luxury resort here. Who knew? We certainly can, said Rich. If you're willing to put in the hours. My brother is a genius, said a voice from behind me, and I turned. Brass Robbie, a Cebu in one hand, pushed back his locks with the other and pulled up a chair. He fist-bumped me and acknowledged Sebastian. Polonais, right? You were in B2. B3, Sebastian corrected with a smile, but close. I remember such good times. Robbie turned to me and grinned. So Rich is giving you his NYS sermon, right? My brother really made that work for him. He's like a mad professor of cookery now. The kitchen is his laboratory. Isn't that right, brother? Rich blushed. Something like that. Cuisine is pure chemistry after all, just with gas rings and griddles, not Bunsen burners. I learned a lot about food at MYS and also, he looked at me, in your country when I was a cold and hungry student at Nottingham. With the mystery of the East Midlands accent solved, the conversation meandered back and forth, drink flowed for the non-drivers, and the gathering below gradually dispersed. Finally, as the DJ was packing up, the clock tower nearby struck midnight. That's me then, said Rich, drinking up. Taxi back to the resort. Need to check the night auditor has the figures right from this evening's service before my head can hit the pillow. He rose uncomplainingly and wished us all a good night. We lingered a while longer before I excused myself, leaving Sebastian reminiscing with Robbie, and went alone to retrieve the moke. Retracing my steps to the basketball court car park, I hurried past darkened shop fronts overshadowed by Victoria House, a jarring modern eyesore dwarfing the town's few blessedly surviving examples of old Creole merchant's premises. As I reached the car park, a figure stepped out of the darkness. Journalist anglais, vous pouvez beaucoup l'ennemi, he said. Il bon l'amour. 
It startled me, but I kept walking, quickening my pace. It was not uncommon for a television reporter to be approached with criticism. It was less agreeable to be informed that I faced many enemies with deaths to follow. Within a few steps I'd reached the moke and was preparing for a rapid exit when my eye caught something bizarre on top of the dashboard, apparently intended for my attention. It was the shell of a giant African snail, common enough mollusks in our garden at the beach house, but its inhabitant had long departed and a crumpled fragment of paper had been shoved into the aperture in its place. I unfurled the note and mouthed the words written. Ritatari, Ritatara, it read. I knew the phrase. It was part of a zedmo, a traditional Creole wordplay, a benign incantation familiar to generations of Sejua raised before television or the internet, whose grandmothers used them as a call to their knee to listen to old island tales. But that evening, pushed inside a snail shell, the half-riddle's intent felt more sinister. I looked up, fancying the shadowy figure who seemed to have been anticipating me and had had a menacing point to make might also be the messenger. But he had vanished as silently as he'd appeared, and I was left staring troubled into the darkness. Sebastian had been right. A letter had been foreshadowed, and it had come just as he'd predicted, at least a letter of sorts. He was waiting for me back in the museum, and I resolved to say nothing about it, eclipsed as it would be by events in the hours that followed. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.